Hello and welcome to the Motormouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport chat about their lives and everything in between. Uh, now, for this episode, we've actually teamed up with the guys at Racing Chocks, who are a non-paying sponsor of the podcast this week. Uh, and we're delighted to try and help them and, and introduce them to you guys. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused absolute chaos within the motorsport industry, like it has many others. And with the cancellation of races around the world as well as having an effect on huge corporate sponsors involved with motorsport. It also has an instant and devastating impact on small independent companies like Racing Chocks. Now, Racing Chocks are a motorsport-themed chocolatier who create build chocolates shaped and decorated to look like racing helmets, I know. They also do large motorsport-inspired Easter eggs and chocolate racing cars. What is not to love? So with Easter especially coming up, there's never been a better time to visit their website, www.racing.com chocks.com and order some tasty motorsport treats please show your support and head over to their website and follow racing chocks across your social media accounts welcome to episode 16 of the motormouth podcast and as always i'm joined albeit from several miles away by the very talented and very tall mr harry benjamin Oh, wow. Round of applause. I never get one normally. Why not? Um, How are you? Hello, Tim. I'm doing all right, to be fair. Isolation is uh, treating me moderately well. Um, I haven't had my allocated one one bit of exercise outside yet. Um, so looking forward to that later. Are you stockpiling um, them? I'm stockpiling my outdoor time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I've set, I'm, I'm coming live to you from the broom cupboard. I've got a sort of w- a walk-in wardrobe, which I've converted into a, a sort of soundproof studio. It looks very, um, very so professional. I can see it on my, the wonders exactly, of Zoom video. I know, right? So, uh, so hopefully that's proven the job. Although being six foot five, it is a bit of a tight squeeze, but we manage it. Um, yeah, no, I've been you know, doing all right so far. I'm like Good. day eight into isolation but we'll see how we'll see how it goes this time next week yes. uh, what about you how's, uh, how's yeah, life not you bad not bad homeschooling um oh god how on earth are you doing that i'm not so I, i'm doing There's as much time as i can in the office uh, in the garden and as little time as possible homeschooling and then i'll pop out every now and again to kick a football for five minutes and then go back in so you're there for the pe yeah uh, basically yeah <laughs> the joe wicks challenge 9 a.m every every morning um, oh, honestly he's a game changer i've never been into my fitness so much yeah it's good and thank you for my press-up challenge as well by the way not You're appreciated so at all 10 coming your way yeah thanks very much <laughs> well shall i introduce the show i think so let's get on with it so today does feel a little bit odd this is the first podcast recording we've done in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and things are a little bleak out there it's also the first time we've been forced into recording remotely so apologize in advance for any little bugs um, but we're all on lockdown and forced isolation however we're hoping that by releasing as many podcasts as we can over the coming weeks will help you guys in our own very small and very humble way to brighten up the days. This week we have Mr Mark Priestley on the show otherwise known as F1 Elvis. He spent the best part of 10 years working with the likes of Hacken and Alonso, Raikkonen, Button and Lewis Hamilton as a mechanic at the McLaren Formula One team. He's now moved into television as a motorsport broadcaster and writer and can regularly be seen on the BBC, Sky Sports F1, ESPN, Talk Sport Radio and many many more. He's pumping out content via his rapidly growing youtube channel and even has his own book quite frankly we're honored to have him here and it's a big motormouth welcome to mark Priestley. 
<laughs> a more well-deserved uh, round of applause there, Mark. Definitely. Uh, how, how is life in isolation treating you so far? Well, it's funny actually hearing Tim describe his day because mine's very similar. <laughs> and I'm pretty much the same thing, popping out into the garden, kicking a football every uh, every kind of hour. Yeah. And uh, Joe Wick is featuring heavily in the mornings. <laughs> yeah. How many kids have you got, Mark? Well, I've got at least four. Um, <laughs> that you know of, I've yeah. Actually got, um, yeah. I've got four, but uh, two of them are actually grown up and uh, and well self-sufficient now. So uh, it's just two that we're sort of homeschooling. We've got twins who are nine years old. So Twins, you know, wow. Challenges, but uh, we, we can overcome them. God, four kids. You don't look old enough to have four kids. How old are you? you, you we, we were trying yeah, to guess earlier on. We, we, were, we were guessing early 40s. But Because um, looking at your career, you mu- I feel like you must have started young, surely. Yeah, I did start young. I mean, I'm 43. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I started young. I was um, I was actually the youngest member of the McLaren team when I joined, and I was oh, wow. um, twenty, um, twenty or twenty one when I just just uh, arrived at McLaren, and um, yeah, so it was uh, I was in this sudden suddenly in this world where first of all everyone was a bit older, everyone seemed more experienced, but um, you know it was this dream that I'd had for well, I, but my whole dream about Formula One started quite young because I knew from a teenage my teenage years really that that's what I wanted to do, so. Although I was young, it felt like that journey still been quite long before I actually got there. Yeah, yeah. We were going to ask actually, you know, if that was always the dream to go down the motorsport route. Was it always to be in the mechanical and engineering side of things, or in the early days were you thinking I want to grow up to be a racing driver? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, like most kids, I, I definitely would have loved to have been a driver. I definitely would have been better paid being a driver. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I clearly remember when I was a young kid, you know, sort of around the 10, 11, 12 years old, thinking, yeah, I'd love to be a racing driver or a pilot or whatever. Um, but then pretty quickly after that, I reckon, into my early teenage years, I was I became equally as fascinated with the technology. And, you know, I remember seeing the pictures of cars from the 70s, which had, you know, six wheels and giant fans yeah. on the back and these real contraptions that seemed out of this world to me and being amazed and fascinated by that and then the other thing was the pit stops i was always obsessed with these guys that were bursting out of the garage to do these pit stops and um and there was a definite switch over point perhaps it was a more realistic dream to be one of the guys in the pit stop than it was to be one of the racing drivers i mean i did a bit of karting as a kid loved it and it was okay but then you realize that being okay or being good is one thing but, but getting to formula one levels when you do come up against another kid who's very good in a go-kart you realise that there's a gulf between yeah. what I thought was good and what was probably needed mm. to go to the next level. Yeah, yeah. Is um is is racing and 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 sport and engineering in in your blood? Is there family indications of it from an early age, or was it something completely random that you just thought you just took a, a fascination to? Yeah, no history of it in the family. Although um, I'm pretty sure, looking back now, that it, it was generated by the fact that we used to live pretty close to Brands Hatch. Um, uh-huh. So my when I was a kid, as a you know my early childhood days were growing up in the village where Brands Hatch is in Kent and back then the British Grand Prix was held there every other year so you know I had this thing where first of all you could hear the cars all the time in the background in the village Um, and also every other year we'd have thousands of people descend on our sleepy little village and you can't help but be sort of fascinated by that and wonder why on earth they're all coming to your little place and um, so I'm sure that's where the fascination came from 
So Mark, when did it all um, start to fall into place? At what point did you think, right, this is a career for me? Um, where did you make your first move into becoming a mechanic and all the way up to, obviously, um, number one mechanic at the, the McLaren Formula One team? Um, uh, there's the dream. But when you started out, that must have felt like an awfully long way away. Yeah, it did. Um, so the obsession was there from a really early age, I'd say 12, 13, 14. But never, I reckon I, was, I must have been 16 or 17 by the time I actually decided to, to, to really go for it. Because actually, I think like lots of people, I'd been encouraged to go down a much more traditional route in terms of education. And I was, I'd gone to uh, college, actually, first of all, to study A-levels mm-hmm. in, um, uh, well, I think it was like art and design and that kind of stuff. But then during that course, I, I kind of realized that this was my moment. If I was going to choose to go and, and follow this dream of being in Formula One, that I had to just kind of do it now. I had to put everything into it. Yeah. So I had this awkward conversation with my parents that, uh, that said I wanted to ditch the A-level course halfway through, which was a disastrous move, of course, on their <laughs> part, and, uh, and then go into mechanical engineering, which was a course that was available at the time. Uh, back then, there was no such thing as a motorsport engineering course like there are now, lots of degrees specific to motorsport. So it was mechanical engineering that I went into. Uh, I managed to convince them it was the right thing to do and um, followed that course. And as soon as I'd made that decision to go down that route, I knew I'd made the right decision. I loved it. And immediately from that point on, I tried. I started writing to teams, motorsport teams, not F1 teams at that point just small teams to try and offer my services for free and, and do a bit of work experience at weekends. And occasionally I'd get somebody come back saying, yeah, come along. And and I'd go and make the tea or sweep up in the pit lane or clean the cars or whatever it was. But it got me to pit lanes and it got me working on racing cars, albeit just on the fringes. Yeah. And that, you know, that's where it started. That was absolutely convinced me or, or, confirmed to me that I'd made the right call. And and are you in were you a natural at this sort of thing, a tinkering of cars? Because me, you know, I'm naturally crap at, at fixing <laughs> anything, whether it's hanging a you know, drilling a hole and hanging a picture on the wall or trying to fix anything on the car. It's totally useless. <laughs> no talent whatsoever with my hands. Did you take to it like a duck to water and think, yes, I've found my calling? Yeah, I think I am. I'm just one of those guys who's who's kind of naturally obsessed with working out how things work. And and even before I made the switch to the mechanical engineering course, I was always that kid who was taking things apart. So I was always obsessed with the mechanical side of things. And I guess, um, yeah, you, some people, like you say, have a natural affinity to that kind of thing. And I, I'm probably one of those. I'm a practical kind of guy. What, um, what I found interesting is because, you know, we talk to a lot of uh, drivers, especially on, on the podcast, and you, that's the story you hear a lot of. You know, they start off in karting and, and their aim is to, to get to, the, to Formula One or, or these days it's the, you know, the World Endurance Championship or, or Formula E, even, you know, the, the, high, the top echelons. Is it the same for a, mecha- uh, a mechanic? Do you start off, you know, right, let's start off in go-karting and there's a natural progression route throughout, you know, each category of sport. Is it, is, is it the same process? Yeah, it's very similar, actually. I mean, I was always, I knew Formula One was always going to be my target. And actually, it's almost identical route. Um, and actually, kind of just purely by coincidence, my career, if you like, through up those that ladder of motorsport very closely, and it was a total coincidence, followed Jensen Buttons. So when Jensen was in Formula oh, wow. Ford, uh, I was in Formula Ford as well. And then when he went to Formula 3, you know, we weren't working together, but we were in the same, you know, in the same pit lanes at the same time. And and so I went to Formula 3 as well, and then I went on to... He went actually straight to Formula 1 from F3. Uh, I did Formula 3000, 
uh, and then went to Formula One. And of course, eventually we all both ended up at McLaren. So it definitely follows the same kind of route. And, and much as it's a training process for a driver, it's a training process for anybody on the engineering mm. side as well. The, the, the cars get more complicated. You know, you build that experience um, just like a driver does. It's about being around cars, being around pit lanes and, and getting your hands dirty and understanding all of these things that you, you learn through the lower categories, just like it will be for a driver, all come into play at some point further down your career where you fall back on that experience. And it's the same for us. And how did it come about with McLaren? I mean, you, you worked your way up through um, Formula 3 and other race series. You worked on GT3 sports cars. At what point did it come to the, the stage where you thought, right, I'm ready to make the step up? Or did the step up come to you? How, how did that whole relationship develop with McLaren? Oh, well, I thought I was ready to make the step up when I was about 17. <laughs> <laughs> the cocky teenager. <laughs> Formula 1 didn't quite agree at that point. Um <laughs> But even since I was about 17 or 18, I was writing to to all the Formula One teams. And of course, back then there was no, this is going to tell you how old I am, there's no such thing as email. Um, yeah. You know, it was it was literally writing letters and posting them to every Formula One team. And so there was the challenge of, first of all, finding out the addresses of all of these places that I seem to remember being tough, but I found the addresses. Um, I tried to find the names of the people inside the teams that I thought would be most beneficial to me rather than just going to an HR yeah. address or whatever. And so I wrote these these letters, posted them, and I was literally doing that every week or every other week. And I've still got at home today a, a stack of rejection letters that were coming back in this constant stream telling me, you know, you haven't got enough experience, we'll keep you on file, you know, on file, you know, the standard letter. And so I was doing that for... I don't know, it felt like forever, but probably three or four years I was doing that on a regular basis. So I've got a huge pile of letters. Um, and then eventually, uh, just kind of out of the blue, probably because I've made myself such a pain in the ass to McLaren, um, they kind of caved in and, uh, and I finally got a letter back saying, do you want to come in for an interview? And it was literally the best day of my life. You know, yeah. I remember opening the letter, probably imagining what it was going to say, read the first line, and it was different. You know, and uh, and my eyes lit up, and I, and I had to read it three or four times. But it was an amazing moment, and um, you know, and that was what triggered a series of amazing moments that went through the interview process, and then eventually the call to say I'd got a job. And and it was, I mean, you know, it's an overused term, but it was literally a dream come true yeah. that I had for a long time. And what was the job at that stage? Well, it was so back then. Every Formula One team had test teams, so it was a separate team within the formula one team we had our own cars our own mechanics you know trucks and equipment and we used to go testing i mean literally every week so that seems like an alien concept to those formula one fans in the modern era where we can't we get six Mm. days a year um we were testing every week at different circuits all around europe um preparing for for every single race and uh so i never went racing in my first year never saw a the Grand Prix, uh, you know, from, from the pit lane, but I was at, you know, wearing the same team kit as everybody. I was in the, in the garage working on these same cars. I was working with the drivers, Mika Hacken and David Coulthard. And it was a brilliant learning experience of getting your hands or getting used to this Formula One experience without so much pressure as you have at a Grand Prix. Mm, mm, amazing. And then you quickly rose through the ranks. How long did it take you to reach number one mechanic, the main man? <laughs> well, um, I think from that first day of getting the call, in fact, just to quickly tell you, when I got the call to say I got the job at McLaren, I'd been waiting so long for this opportunity that another opportunity had come up actually working for ProDrive, who were leading a team in the rally, uh, World Rally Series. And I'd, I'd 
taken the job because that was another amazing opportunity. Went to work at ProDrive, and it was actually on my very first day at ProDrive. At lunchtime, I got the call from McLaren. <laughs> so on my very first day at this new job, I had to go into the team manager and say, "Listen, oh god, I'm really sorry about this." <laughs> They must have gone, it's okay, it's, it's, it's McLaren, um, come on, it's fine. Pretty much that. Yeah. I mean, luckily they understood. Um, so anyway, from that moment onwards, um, I, did a, <laughs> I did a year on the test team, um, and then I got very quickly, I was quite lucky, I got bumped up to the race team after a year, um, and then I worked on the T car, which was, again, something that we don't have anymore, but mm. the third car in the Formula 1 garage at, at a Grand Prix. Worked on that for a year. And then when Kimi joined um, McLaren, I got moved over onto Kimi's car. And at that point, you know, there's a number of mechanics around the car. I was in what they call a number two mechanic. I was working on the front end of Kimi's car. And I did that for a few years. I reckon it must have been about four, five years before I then got bumped up to the number one mechanic position, uh, which is a reasonably quick rise through yeah. the, the team. Um but I was always, I'm always, I'm the kind of person that's very driven, always wanting to move up. So I was, I was always kind of chasing those opportunities, making it clear to everybody at the team that, you know, I wasn't just happy to sit what I was doing. I was, I was loving it, mm. but I wanted to, to rise up and move my way through the organization as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here's one for you. Who was the best driver you ever worked with? Best in, not in terms of personality or anything like that. Best on track. Who was the best driver you worked with? And you've worked with a few, Hacken and DC, Panis, Raikkonen, Montoya, De La Rosa, Verts, Hamilton, Alonso, Kovalainen. The list is pretty high profile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, well, I was very lucky to be there at a time when we, were, we did have some of the most incredible drivers. I would say, I mean, it's difficult to look past Lewis, isn't it? Now, yeah. go, knowing mm-hmm. what he's gone on to achieve. And those first two years of his Formula 1 career were mind-blowing. Yeah. You, know, you could quickly see that he was exceptional, particularly when he went up against Alonso, and, you know, was as good on certain days better in his first ever year. Um, so it was very easy to see that he was special. Yeah. So I'd say he's probably got to go down as being the best driver that I've worked with. But I have to say that Kimmy was probably the fastest driver I've ever worked with over a lap. In his day, back in uh, so mid-2000s, he could pull a lap out of a car that probably didn't deserve to go as quickly as it, as it was, you know. Yeah. And he was, there was no fuss about it. he just get in it and deliver these unbelievable times. So he probably wasn't the most complete driver, Kimmy, because, uh, you know, he, he didn't commit himself to the levels that Lewis has gone on to do. So I'd say Lewis is probably the most complete and, and probably the best. The mm. history books will definitely say it. And I'd say my experience of working with Lewis says that he's he's very, very good. Yeah, I mean, and he seems to um, really embrace the whole team environment. From an outsider position, looking in, watching the races, it seems like, you know, when, when he wins, he wins with his team. When he loses, he loses with his team. Was that what he was like behind the scenes in reality? Or, or is there a side of Lewis that we don't see in the public? Um, I think there's definitely a side to Lewis that even his team don't see. He's a very private individual um, and I think he's changed a lot over the years. So when I was first working with Lewis, I think he was, and I, I talk about this in my book quite candidly, that he, he's quite, um, I think he was quite badly advised in the first few years. And, uh, and actually he sort of played the team quite a lot, you know, in the media, in mm. this fight that he was having on a personal level with Fernando. Mm. Um, he actually used the team in a lot of his media games and, and that didn't go down well inside McLaren in that first year. But I have to say that after that, once Alonso left and in 2008, he said he definitely changed. He started to 
probably the, the experience of that first year helped. You started to grow and mature a little bit. And I suspect that's now gone on to, to, to even greater levels. I mm. think now you're right. What you see now is that he's very appreciative of what his team do for him. Uh, and I saw that in 2008. He definitely was when we won the championship. Um, but I do think there's a side to Lewis that, um, that even those who work with him now on a, on a daily basis at, at Mercedes probably don't see. Mm. And that's very deliberate. He keeps a certain chunk of himself private and you, you have to sort of respect that i guess yeah no for sure H- having um having worked as you said starting with the test team to working on the t-car and as you said those aren't around anymore to a to a modern day formula one fan that is as you said an alien concept how do you see the world of formula one testing these days do you a lot of people obviously would love to go testing galore hours and hours of it but there's reasons why we don't have it anymore but i just wanted you know, what is your take on it? Do you think there should be more allowance for it? Of course, it also gives, you know, young upcoming drivers more of a chance to prove their worth as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And that's that's one of the arguments for having more testing, isn't it? To get, to give more track time, which is the one thing that's so limited now. I mean, how do you mm. learn to be a Formula One driver if you can't mm. ever get in a car? Um, uh, so I understand all the reasons behind it. Most of them have been cost-driven, haven't they? My argument with all of these things, and actually this is a much bigger argument around a lot of the technical restrictions that we have, as well as the testing restrictions. So many restrictions in Formula One that have come into place to manage costs um, on so many different levels. Completely the right thing to do, totally understandable. We're about to enter a phase in Formula One where we're, we're having a budget cap, a cost cap. So I have got this theory where we should, and, I, and it maybe will go this way, we open up many of those restrictions. We still keep the budget cap, and the teams then have the decision to make of how they spend their money. They can only spend a certain amount. That costs. That spending's not going to go out of control. But if they see a benefit in putting a car on a racetrack, or if they see a benefit in you know spending more time in a wind tunnel or more time with CFD or developing a particular system on the car, which might have been prohibitively expensive up until now, if they see that as worthwhile within their spending restriction, why not? Um, mm. So I do think we're on the brink of, of something potentially quite big changing in Formula One around this cost cap. It's going to be interesting to see. I think it'll take a few years before it's fully settled down, fully policed properly to a level that it works. But I think it's a really good move. Um, and I, you know, I absolutely agree with you that I think testing is an important part of it, not just for drivers, as you mentioned there, for engineers as well. Yeah, you know, it's, it's for people all like you well, who want to come up the through engineers. the ranks. Yeah, absolutely. It's all very well, you know, working with the simulator and, and all of those things. And they're all great. They're brilliant, brilliant tools, but they are no replacement for being in a pit mm-hmm. lane and going through things like race simulations in pre-season testing. And if you only get six days and, and that's, you know, on the on the trajectory it's going, that could even become less at some point. That's not enough. Um, you know, it becomes very hard to prepare your team to be the best you can be in, you know, under those circumstances. So I'd love to see the testing restrictions lifted, but kept within a, a budget constraint so that we can't go mad with spending. But if that's something mm. that teams see as a benefit, we can do it. 
And, and that's the balancing act, isn't it? Trying to get all the teams to agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And and we we don't claim to be uh, aerodynamic experts here by any means, Mark. And uh, as you know, we like to keep things light. However, we have talked uh, on previous podcasts about the rule changes, which have obviously been delayed now. But the the uh, the move to uh, less aerodynamic bits and pieces on top of the car, and the move to a more ground effect um, scenario, is this a good thing for Formula One? Will this make the the, the racing more interesting? Uh, yeah, it, I think it will. Um, the idea, of course, by doing that is that you essentially what we have now, and I, and I won't go into too much detail, but now we have all these little flick ups and flaps and, and everything's designed to throw out the sides of the car, this messy, turbulent wake that comes off the tyres. That's one of the aerodynamics' biggest problems. So what they do is they inject out the side that messy, turbulent wake so that it becomes no longer their problem. It doesn't interfere with the aero on their car. But of course, what it does do is the car behind then has to deal with that. And that's where they lose all their downfall. So what we're trying to do for the new set of regulations is to stop the teams having to eject that messy wake by minimizing the wake itself. So the tires are becoming these low profile tires that don't deflect as much. That's one issue. Um, The aero under the car is going to generate much of the downforce. That's much less disruptive to the car behind. So all of the theories behind this, you know, are good theories. They all work in theory. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens in practice. I think the idea that cars will, will be able to follow each other, you know, will work out. I think that's, you know, the data says it will work out. Yeah. Uh, it will be better. I think what's going to be the challenge is because, of course, all of this is, gener- is, is being designed to try and improve the spectacle, make racing closer, tighter, more entertaining. What often happens with any rule change is that the big teams that have more budget are able to deal with those changes better. And you may well still end up with a scenario where one team dominates, yeah. you know, and, and disappears off into the distance. Now, is that entertaining? I don't know what, what the solution to that is. I mean, one of the solutions would have been to introduce the cost cap a year before the technical regs, which is obviously now what we're going to have because the technical regs have been pushed back a year. The yep. budget cap's remaining uh, coming into play January 2021. So we might see a nice positive effect from that Yeah, in that most of that 2022 development will be done under the new cost spending cap. So yeah. hopefully that will help. And I, and I do, I've got high hopes for these new regulations. Yeah. Good. And one thing I've always wanted to ask um, someone like you, who's been at the, the hard end of the sport and has stood in the pit lane when the likes of Lewis Hamilton is coming in, he's, he's, he's pissed off about something. He's tearing towards you down the pit lane. What is it like that sort of surge of adrenaline, the panic, the fear, um, or, or do those things not kick in? Are you calm and collected because of all of your training? What's it like when that car's coming towards you down the pit lane? I'd be shitting myself. Mate, it's terrifying. It's <laughs> terrifying. It's, um, honestly, it's the, that, that first, when you first do it, the first time particularly, I mean, it's the scariest thing. It's still the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, and that's saying something because I've got four kids and I've been married twice. <laughs> um, it's terrifying. And I remember my first ever pit stop, I was doing the nose change. You know, the team manager had given me the job to put the new oh, nose on. Christ. And I think he gave me that job because it hardly ever happens. And I was this new kid on the block with no experience. So and of course. I'll give him the safe mm. job, you know. And of course, you know what happened in my first race? The nose got knocked oh, off on turn sweet one. Jesus. <laughs> no. Straight in for a pit stop. It was terrifying, man. It's Particularly back then, it was the pit lane speed limit was higher. So it was 120 kilometers an hour, so yeah. 70 miles an hour. 
So that's like standing in the fast lane of a motorway, hoping that the guy's going to stop at your ankles <laughs> at the last moment. And the brakes are so good that probably 15 metres from you, you're still doing 70 miles an hour. Mm. <laughs> it's uh, absolutely terrifying. Squeaky bum time. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting, actually. It pick you up on, on pit stops and how far they've come as well since you're working for one to, to these yeah. days. Obviously, we've lost things like refueling, which obviously took a lot more time. But you're getting, you know, you can get a sub two second pit stop quite, you know, that's common these days. Yeah. And I think a lot of perhaps more general Formula One fans miss the fact that actually mechanics and the, and the engineers and the people working in the pit lane on the pit stops, they also have to be pretty, you know, athletically fit as well. Did you have, you know, a bit of a, a fitness regime going? Was it just as sort of strict as you might think as a, as a you know, a typical athlete might go through? Well, it, yeah, it changed during, so I was at McLaren for around 10, almost 10 years. And, and the process changed during that period of time where we realised that there was, you know, uh, time to be gained or, or advantages to be gained by treating the pit stop crew more like the athletes that we treat the drivers. The human mm. performance side is as important as the technical side, which we'd sort of probably overlooked up until that point. So yeah, we went from being a, a group of, you know, uh, there were a, a, some a, a complete combination of different shapes of people sat in that garage, if you <laughs> put it bluntly. I mean, there were truckies who were 18 stone that were bursting out of, and when I say bursting out of the garage, you know, leisurely yeah. rolling out of the garage to pit stop. Um, I mean, I remember being in the, you know, sat in the garage, curled up in a nice, cosy, warm tyre blanket while the race was going on, having a snooze because that was the first <laughs> time I'd had a chance to sit down over the race weekend. Oh, and the wow. first time you wake up from that is when the pit, you know, the, the team manager calls a pit stop in your earpiece. Now, you know, you can look at that now and go, well, you're never going to be at your optimum physical or mental state having mm. just woken up. Yeah. But that, that's what we used to do. So that changed over the years. And now we look at it in a much more scientific manner. We do have a very strict training range, physical training regime. And we used to end up go, we used to go to the Finnish um, Olympic Institute every year for a week of intense training and biometric testing. And it was, it was an incredible experience. You know, it was proper Olympic athlete level training and testing procedures to, you know, build these these bespoke training procedures for each of us, depending on what role we were doing around the pit stop. And it was an eye-opening experience. And there was even dietary regimes that teams follow now that mm. are geared up towards, you know, making you, putting you in the right optimum level when it matters. Sports psychologists as well being, being used at some teams. So it's gone to an incredible level. And that's why we're able to see the pit stops that we see today, which for me are a real spectacle in Formula mm. One. You know, the fact that we can do that should be shouted about more, in my opinion. Yes, agreed completely. Um, did anyone, I guess they must have done at some point in your 10 years, did anyone really lose their rag with you where you thought, oh God, I've really cocked <laughs> up here? The wor your, wor your, best, uh, your best and worst memory of, uh, of being in the lane. <laughs> um, did anyone lose my rag? I mean, I, anyone who has read my book will know that... Uh, um, I uh, <laughs> I should probably if I should say this story I probably should. Yeah, go um, on. When Kimmy left the team, um, we had this we had this tradition at McLaren when when anyone left the team we would we would dye them blue with this intense blue dye that we used to put in the water system of the car. So we'd tie them to the pit wall. If a mechanic was leaving, we'd tie them to the pit wall. We'd spray this or chuck this blue powder over them, and then you throw water at them, and they immediately turn into a smurf. Sounds you know, amazing. It's this incredible, intense blue dye, and it had become a tradition over the years. 
And when Kimi was leaving to join Ferrari at the end of 2006, you know, I was very close to Kimi by that point. We were great mates. I was, I was working on his car. And, uh, and all week in Brazil at the Brazilian Grand Prix, I was winding him up saying, well, you know that when anyone leaves, you know, we, we dye them blue at McLaren. <laughs> and just kept putting these little nuggets in. And all the way through... Kimmy just kept saying, I, I get helicopter straight after the race. You don't fucking get me. <laughs> and I kept saying, well, we'll see, mate. We'll see. And I just kept winding him up all week. And it got to such a point that I realized that I'd wound him up so much that I probably had to deliver on this because otherwise he would just win and I'd lose. And I wasn't that kind of guy. So stupidly, uh, on the race day where one of my roles was to strap him into the car, so on the grid at the Brazilian Grand Prix, and it was, in fact, during that moment, you remember when he was doing that interview with Martin Brundle when he said, I was taking a shit? Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> when he was having that interview with Brundle, I was filling his gloves up with this <laughs> intense blue powder dye, um, which I appreciate was a stupid move. Uh, probably could have lost me my job. Anyway, Kimmy got back in the car. I put his, I gave him his gloves. Uh, he put them on. He went through the Brazilian Grand Prix sweating for two hours. And uh, by the time he took his gloves off, he had Smurf hands. <laughs> and um, so, <laughs> so he did go mad. Um, he wasn't happy at the end. He, he kind of came into the garage, scrubbing his hands furiously, looked across and knew it was me and just went, I will fucking get you back. <laughs> and did he? Did he get you back? And he did get me back because, um, yeah, a month or so later, I went out to his house, actually. We went to his house in Finland for a week, which we were doing every year, and uh, with a bunch of mates, just a big piss-up, basically, for a week. And on the first night, we stayed up as long as we could and eventually had to go to bed. And after about half an hour of me being in my bed, the door came off its hinges where him and his mate kicked the door in, pinned me down and buzzed a reverse Mohican through oh the middle of my God. head. Of <laughs> um. Brilliant. <laughs> you don't, is, there a, is there a Kimmy that you see? Obviously, Kimmy is quite a character anyway, but is there a Kimmy you see on the track? And then clearly, is there a different Kimmy behind closed doors? Well, he's always oh, drunk, yeah, isn't he? 100%. And it, it's... You know, I mean, I've now moved into this media world where there's a few occasions when I've had to interview Kimmy and we're great mates yeah. still today. As soon as you jam a microphone under his nose, he just closes up and yeah. gives you these stupid one-word answers. You get away <laughs> from the racetrack. He's a completely, you can't, you can't shut him up sometimes. He's a great guy. He's a lovely oh, wow. guy to go and have dinner with. So yeah, very different. <laughs> oh, and who, talking of great mates, who was your best pal in the paddock? Um, well, I mean, Kimmy was probably the best mate in terms of drivers, um, but my best mate and probably my, in fact, my best man at my wedding uh, was Kimmy's trainer, Mark Arnold. Right. Um, so if you ever see a photo of Kimmy in the background will be Mark Arnold. He's a ball-headed guy. He's his trainer, has been for 20 years or so. And, uh, and we're probably closest of, of anybody within the paddock. What's your, your favourite circuit? Um, it can be current now or when you were involved or, or even pre um what's your favorite and why i think at a personal level brands hatch is still i think is a brands hatch grand prix track i think it's a great i'd love us to go back there yeah uh, i just think it's one of it's obviously special for me because i used to live next door to it uh, and it was my first experience motor racing but i also think it's a great track it's one of those proper old school circuits so definitely love that one um i also love suzuka as a track it's brilliant but also as an event the, the japanese fans are just bonkers like, yeah the passion they have was it was great and and even as mechanics and engineers when we were at the circuit we were almost like celebrities to them as well and they yeah they'd, they'd want our autographs and they'd give us gifts each year and 
So it was an amazing experience going to Suzuka. So those are my two favourites. Yeah, I, I agree. I went to, um, I've been to the Japanese Grand Prix a few times in different places and um, the the grandstands there are something else. I've never heard a Formula One grandstand sound like a football um, stadium. It's unbelievable the noise they make yeah. and the passion they have for it is quite incredible. Right, now listen, this is very important. We have a quiz for you. There is a leaderboard and um, being in the position that you've been in, we will be extremely disappointed if you're not top of the leaderboard after this. Harry, <laughs> over to you. Yes, so this is Motormouths, Mark. Uh, now we ran this in our first season and Adam Christodoulou came out on top. It is quite possibly one of the hardest motorsport quizzes going um and i come up with it every time uh, at the moment mark blundell uh is top of the leaderboard with four points equal with jenny gow abby eaton is three and a half and Catherine bonmuir who runs w series is at the bottom of the leaderboard with three points so basically i've got four clips for you they're all various bits of team radio interview clips uh and you've basically got to tell me uh who's saying it and what they're talking about and then there's some bonus bonus points uh, if you can tell me when and where as well okay. uh, and to make it easy for each guest i do personalize it so they are all to do with your mclaren years so hopefully that should make it a little bit easier zero excuses um, so let's take it away with number one shall we here we go and and, and i went completely inside and and uh, tore also from the from the back marker so it gave me extra speed and it was great great over We'll take him when you were in. I loved it. That's the hardest one, I think. That's a tough one. That is, I mean, it's Bottas. Um, oh. He said it so confidently as well. I oh, know. No, no it, you're right with the nationality, though. Oh, it's Kimmy's. Oh, it's Mika. It's Mika. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, can you, do you know what he's talking about? Oh, can I hear it again? You can. Here we go. Here it comes. And 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 I went completely inside and and uh, tore also from the from the back marker, so it gave me extra speed. Yeah, and okay. it was great, great over. So that's Mika talking about uh, at Spa that double overtake where he took Schumacher and was it Zonta maybe? Yeah, that is that is incredible. All right, you get uh, you know what you get a full point for that because you made up for you made up for it by adding all that detail. So yeah, that was Mika Hakkinen Hatton, overtaking Schumacher and a backmarker in what they're saying is one of the best overtaking moves in Formula One. <laughs> Very um, good. And Spa Very 2000. Good. Yeah, well done. Uh, all right, that's one point on the board. Let's move on to number two. Here we go. Is that your decision or the team holding you back? Thing was was holding me back in in this, and uh, we tried to keep. Uh, to have a little bit of space, we had the, the Ferrari in two stops in front of us, and uh, with a prime tire. Okay, so it's Alonso. Yeah. Yes. Uh, oh gosh. No, it's one I mean, of the more it's one of the more controversial moments in his McLaren career. Okay, so it's it's the Hungarian Grand Prix uh, talking about that fateful pit stop that I was in. I should know that. Yes. Um, yes. So yeah, Hungarian Grand Prix where he delayed his departure. Uh, in fact, I was one of those people waving <laughs> him away. Oh God! What what were you thinking in that moment? Total what confusion. Fuck, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Total confusion. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the in the moment, really couldn't work it out. Very quickly afterwards, of course, the penny dropped as to what was happening. Do you know what my overriding memory of that was? Whilst I was just, I was like, I had total loss of respect for, for him. In fact, for both drivers during that moment, because they both had a part to play in that process. But 
what I couldn't help but have a lot of respect for was how well he was able to judge the timing of when he should leave the pit lane mm. to still get through before the chequered flag dropped and yet force Lewis to miss it. It was incredible. Yeah, well, two right. out of two. <laughs> got, got, got to give him that. Um, okay, well, I'm going to give you a point for that. So, number three. Here Let's we go. On. I think so. The new car will look uh, a lot different from any other cars and uh, will really shine off from the from the grid and hopefully hopefully we will be on the front so everybody will definitely notice it but uh, it will be got to get that one yeah, that's, that's um kimmy talking about the mp418 that that actually never raced <laughs> oh really yeah i think is that right well i've got it it's, it's kimmy talking about the in typical enthusiasm but i've said it was the launch of the mp421 but maybe i'm how you have been known to be wrong I have been known to be wrong, to be fair. What year are we talking? Can you give me a year? Well, the 18 was um, 2005. Ah. Um, I mean, I could be wrong, but the MP4 18 was the car that was launched with so much promise that was supposed to be revolutionary. And then in the end was such a disaster that we, we actually <laughs> never, ever raced it. It was a fairly unique car. So we've got 2006 for the MP4 21. Yes. But I have just ripped it off from YouTube, so it could be wrong. But you know what no, I'm going to do? I'm going to give you going to give you half a point for that. That's it's got definitely Kimmy. wrong because the MP421 was definitely not 2006. Uh, Interesting. Uh, oh, really? Oh, right. Okay. You know what? Then you get the full point because you're probably right. You're more right than I am. <laughs> uh, that's why this is the hardest quiz going in motors. Because the answers <laughs> are all wrong. <laughs> no one really knows what the answer is. Um, right. Okay. So you're doing well. Can you finish strongly? This is your final one. Easy. Yeah, probably uh, one of the most uh, emotional moments of my career, I reckon that. Um, Lewis crossing the line in Brazil, 2008, I assume that is. Yeah, yeah correct. Um, Did you shed a tear? Uh, it's just, um, you know, the term emotional roller coaster is well overused in uh, in sport, but that last lap in Brazil was definitely that because there were moments around the lap where, you know, we were going to be champions and there were a few seconds later where we weren't and then it went swung back. And is that it was block? this incredible scene inside the garage where, in fact, one of my overriding memories is Nicole Scherzinger screaming so loudly <laughs> <laughs> that I needed to uh, to push my earplugs in even further than they already were. <laughs> well, with that, you've got a clean sweep, to be fair, and you've gone joint top of the leaderboard with four points. So you are equal top now with Jenny Gao, uh, who, of course, you've done a lot of work with before, haven't you? And Mark yeah. Blundell. So uh, that's a, that's some pretty good names to be up there with. Uh, but we Great have got company. a lot of guests lined up, so uh, we'll yet to see if you uh, can stay there. I think we were quite easy on him there, up. Harry. I, th- I think we need to... Up the uh, the hardness of these questions. Up the hardness. I thought some of them were hard, but there we go. Yeah. Uh, too good. Too good. Mark, Mark do, you, think- do, do you miss being part of the F1 circus? I know obviously you cover it in certain areas, but do you miss that cam- camaraderie and being part of a, a, a mechanic team? Um, I definitely miss, yeah. You, it takes a bit of getting used to because having done it for 10 years, it's your whole life and, and you're, you know, these are great friends, still great friends of mine today. You, you spend more time with them than you do with your own families yeah so you miss that side of it you know but up until last year in fact i was still traveling to 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 at least half the races every year in a media capacity so i was still able to hang out with them and go for dinners with them yeah so that was great in fact last year was the first year that i didn't in fact i didn't go to any races last year which is a real strange 
thing for me. So when you've done that for so long, it definitely takes a bit of getting used to to adapt. But I'm very lucky to say that I can still, you know, call my career a Formula One based career even today, all these years later. And, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I love it. You've developed this media career now uh, and that took you into the world of Formula E so I'm going to ask you Formula One or Formula E um, I mean I'm still always going to be most passionate about Formula One but I am a big fan of what Formula E are doing on so many levels I think uh, the technology is really interesting I think they're an incredibly innovative championship on, on again on so many things that they do so many levels they're, they're, they're doing first mm. on so many things and you may not agree with all of them some of them seem gimmicky and, and may not stand the test of time but fair play to them for trying new things. It's something that because they're a fairly new and much smaller championship, they have the freedom to be able to experiment, which yeah. Formula One is not able to do in quite the same way. And I, and I really like that about Formula E. So I'm a big fan, but yeah, my passion and my love will always be the Formula One first. I still think they need to give those cars a noise. It drives me nuts. There was I was, <laughs> I was watching a YouTube video the other day. Uh, I think it was Archie Hamilton, and he uh, was driving um, a Tesla that had programmable yeah. noises, and you could have V8s, V10s, V12s, all sorts of different. They're even coming out with like a Star Wars noise. And yeah. uh, I was like, yes, that that's the way for artificial and cheap, I know. But I just feel like they need something. It's, yeah, um, it's the hardest thing to get used to. And even though, you know, I've spent my entire life in the pit lanes of the world, every time I go to a Formula E race, I nearly get run over because someone yeah. creeps up behind me in a racing car. That yeah, you can't hear them come out of the pits, can you? It just exactly. suddenly goes from, from nothing. But yeah, if you put an artificial noise on them, you're going to know it's fake. So surely that just defeats the whole object. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, also you've got, uh, Mark, I've noticed a pretty good YouTube channel, over 50K mm. subscribers. How's that been going? And what was you? What kind of videos do you do and, and how can people find you if they if they want to go and have a watch? Yeah, well, thanks. You can search me just by searching my name, Mark Priestley. Um, you'll find it. And it's something that I started um, a year, just over a year ago now, I think, a uh, year and a half ago, because, you know, I've spent the last five or so years working in television around motorsports, and which I love. I've really found a passion for that. But in that instance, you always have a producer telling you, you know, right, stand here, say this, look into this camera, do this which is fine, but to have a YouTube channel, I have total freedom mm. to talk about whatever I want to talk about, and that's a really nice opportunity. Uh, I had such an insight and perhaps a, a slightly different insight to the world of Formula One to many other people that I felt like that might be something people are interested in. So I do videos almost every day now, um, particularly right now that we're all locked down at home. I'm doing them every, literally every day. Um, <laughs> around different subjects to do with Formula One and to do with technology and cars in general. Um, so I, I talk about literally anything. People send me questions all the time and I try and answer them. But I have a slightly different take on, on many of these subjects than lots of the, the sort of pundits have, if you like, that are ex-drivers. Because my take is from an engineering perspective yeah. rather than from a driving perspective. So that's what I try and do. I try and share my insight that I've got into the inner workings of a Formula One team and the technology behind it with people that might be interested. And we've uh, we've obviously seen a lot of um, esports and sim racing um, cropping up all over the place. Um, the guys at the race have done it, Veloce Sports, Formula One, obviously. You've got your sim set up at home. Are we going to see you taking part in any uh, celebrity racing uh, events online? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. I've, um, I'm fairly new to all this sim racing, but I've I just kind of discovered it, if you like, last year, and I'm, I'm a huge fan. 
Um, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only using the Xbox and, uh, and the F1 2019 game at the moment, but I have got a little rig with a, a play seat and, and wheel and pedal set up. So I think that might be one of the things that I try and focus on getting better at. Um, home life, any pets? Yeah, I've got two dogs, um, which anyone who watches my YouTube channel will see. They feature heavily. Two uh-huh. big Australian shepherd dogs. Um, oh, amazing. Which, uh, which keep me busy me entertained and i'm amazed that you haven't heard them because they're normally barking every time i try and record anything (laughs) (laughs) do you have any talents the public don't know about (laughs) um goodness me uh do i i don't know i i I kind of i like football and i'm I'm all right at football so um of all my four kids the first two older two were never interested i've got twins who are nine like i said one boy one girl my boy my nine-year-old boy is the first one that's obsessed with football. So I've now got a little partner that I can play with in the, gar- oh, in the nice. garden. So I've kind of started kicking a football about teaching him some skills. So yeah, maybe I've got a few hidden football talents that people might not know about. And what are you crap at? <laughs> Everything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm definitely crap at being a teacher, which I'm realising with the homeschooling thing. Yeah, same. Maths um, not you. Well, you think you'd be good at maths? No, surely. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I'm good at certain. So, I mean, I, I think I'm pretty a clever guy generally in most in some subjects. But there are, <laughs> you know, all these things like geography and history that that I when I realised I wanted to focus everything towards Formula One in my mind, I ditched everything else that yeah. I thought wasn't going to be useful in that sense. So I've forgotten <laughs> everything when it comes to, <laughs> to all these subjects that trying to teach the kids or they get their their textbooks out asking me a question i'm sure many people at home are probably going for exactly the same thing we've right <laughs> got it all <laughs> oh yeah don't remember any, the only thing i remember from school is oxbow lakes that's oxbow about lakes it. nimbus I clouds i got i got an a star in my geography a level so maybe i should start doing online tutoring i could make, yeah. make a bit of money on the side um now i've got one more question for you before we do our sort of final four that we asked all our guests and um, me yeah. and tim were chatting about this just before we uh, we came on favorite era do you have a favorite era of formula one because for me personally from a sort of a fan perspective not looking at things too technically in terms of out and out drama and, and racing and, and driver moves and things like that it was probably this might seem a bit rogue but 2009 to 2012 i thought it was a really like strong era of of entertaining formula one and that's really when i sort of got really engaged with it but what about you obviously there's many golden eras of formula one do you have one yourself yeah, I do. And, and I get asked this a few times. I think the um, the golden era for me was the era that I was working in the team. And, and I don't yeah. just say that from a personal level, but I say that because, first of all, I think we had some great championship battles during that period. That was 2000 to 2009 that I was involved in. I think we had some amazing controversy, some amazing drama. You know, there was the whole Spygate thing. Uh, there oh, was yes, the Schumacher and, um, Schumacher and Hakkinen towards the end of the, the 2000s. Um, sorry, the end of the, uh, the, the 99, 98, 99, 2000 period. Then we had, um, you know, we had Kimi, we had Montoya, we had the Fernando and Lewis battle going on. Um, and for me, that, the reason that was so good was it was that tobacco-funded era where Formula One had literally more money than it knew how to get rid of. Yeah. So we had the, the glamour and the glitz that Formula One was sort of famed for back then. And we still had a little bit of freedom tailing off from the back end of the 70s and 80s where we can have a lot of fun. You know, if you go beyond that and towards the modern day, the sports become a lot more corporate and a lot more... um, And, of course, the world has changed. Everyone's got a a phone in their pocket and everything's... You know, you can't get away with as much. So, from from my perspective, we had 
incredible technology. We had almost unending funding, which as an engineer is like a dream. Mm. There's no restrictions in what you could spend or what equipment you could have. And um, we could also, when we finished work, we could have an amazing party. We could have a great fun in the evenings. And, and that's what made the whole circus. We worked hard, but we played just as hard. And that, for me, was a great <laughs> era to be involved in. And that's the way to do it. Do you have um, a, a hero, racing or, or, or otherwise? Um, some of my heroes actually are, are not even the drivers. Um, you know, I think Adrian Newey is an incredible person yeah. to, to look up to. And, and even... Ron Dennis, on many levels, was a bit of a hero of mine. Mm. Uh, pain in the ass to work for because his, <laughs> his attention to detail was was ridiculous. I mean, he's got OCD. Mm. It was ridiculous yeah, to yeah. work under those conditions. But what he achieved and what he has instilled in me now that I take on into to everyday life, I think, has, has, has helped to make me successful in the things that I do now. You mm. know, that attention to detail, that focus, for me, was, uh, was something that enabled and he was a visionary, Ron Dennis. Yeah. You know, people often disagreed with a lot of his, the things that he did. And this is similar to Adrian. They were quite well suited together in the early days and they were visionaries uh, and had ideas that were sometimes ahead of their time and sometimes didn't work when they first had them. But further down the line today, we're using a lot of those ideas now. So but some of those, those uh, people are heroes of mine that have transformed the sport. Obviously people like Senna um, was, a, was a driving hero. And I would probably go on to say that Lewis is, is, is developed into someone that the sport needs drivers that kids will get fascinated by and aspire to and want to look up to. And Lewis has become one of those. And, and mm. they're sort of few and far between, aren't they? Schumacher was one for many years. Um, we've had some very successful drivers that don't necessarily give off that aura, that hero-like aura. I mean, with the greatest respect, Sebastian Vettel, great driver, had incredible success, but I'm not sure he's like an icon of Formula mm. One that kids will look up to and aspire to be, whereas people like Schumacher, people like Senna, and probably people like Lewis, maybe people like Max Verstappen coming through now as well, maybe Lando mm. Norris could end up being one of those. So you need a bit of personality, a bit of a character, as well as yeah. incredible skills on track. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, uh, sorry, another question has just sort of popped into my mind. The... We haven't really touched this. Obviously, McLaren is, holds a great deal of, of uh, affection. Or you hold a great deal of affection for McLaren. What have you made of the, the the fall of McLaren and now the sort of rising of it again over the last couple of years? Because, you know, it's been quite a, a fall from grace, really. And and now it looks like positive news is, is there. They're getting good results. Obviously, Sainz got his first podium last year. It, it's all, all the signs are looking good. Yeah. And, and, you know, let's be clear, total coincidence that that fall from grace happened when I left the team. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's been very hard to see. And, and particularly the fall from grace in terms of on-track results has coincided with some really turbulent times in terms of the management structure that's changed in, you know, over a number of times, hasn't it, over the years. Um, mm. So I think it's been a really difficult time to be at McLaren partly because of all that internal turmoil that's happened. But then when your results start disappearing, you know, for those people working on the front line at the team, that always just translates into more work and harder work. You end up working harder and longer hours trying to fix problems and yet still not getting the results. You know, when I was working the team, I was very lucky that we went through some incredibly successful periods and it's that little carrot dangling in front of you that you might get a great result. You might, we had a win, a race, mm. or even better, you might be in the hunt for a championship. And those things were the things that, that 
you know, the most amazing feeling when that happens. And they're the things that keep you going, keep you motivated. So when you haven't got any of that, it becomes incredibly hard. So I felt so sorry for, for the people in the team. There's still a lot of my friends. I still speak to them. I know exactly what they've been going through. So to now see that starting to turn a corner and not just the, the results, which are starting to come good or better, but inside the team, the mood is much better. There's an air yeah. of positivity. They feel like they are a bit more grounded and settled in terms of the management and the structure and things I think will only get better from here on in. So a really, really positive story that they've managed to turn it around, but difficult times in the, in the meantime. No, exactly. Well, when and if we get racing again this season, hopefully they can uh, have, a, have a storm of a season. Um, shall we move on to our final four questions, yes, Timothy? Yes, let's do it. Shall I kick off? Go on, you kick off. Mark, what's got you excited at the moment? <laughs> Geography. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say the idea that uh, we're pushing 2021 rules back to 2022, but we're keeping the budget cap. As I touched on it earlier, for me, that was one of the biggest problems with this introduction, what was coming next year. I'm excited that we've got the two now being staggered that I hope will generate a much leveler playing field and some great racing when we finally get going. Excellent. Mm, Harry, agreed. to you. Um, if you didn't end up being an engineer, working as a mechanic, what would you be doing? Uh, something creative, um, but I've really got no idea. And that's, <laughs> you know, the, the, reason, the reason I say that is because I think I was in a fairly unique position. And I don't know many other people that know from 15, 16 years old, 100% what they want to do as a career. We all have dreams of doing, you know, being a professional footballer or an astronaut or whatever. But how many people really know that that is, you know, I knew that is what I was going to do. Nothing was going to stop me. I was 100%. So there was never any other question about what I might do because in my own mind, I was so single-minded about this that there was no way I was not going to be working in Formula One. So I never had a plan B. Um, you know, now looking back, you know, I'm a creative character and I'd probably like to have still done something with, with cars or technology, but perhaps being creative, I'd have, I'd have, maybe I'd have invented something. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> how much of your success is about luck uh, and right place, right time? And how much do you put down to sheer hard work? Um, it's, You've got to have both, um, but I definitely worked hard. I definitely, as I said before, I was so single-minded that my entire life during that period was dedicated to to getting to Formula One. You know, there's no mean feat writing letters. And I, was, I wasn't photocopying the letter I wrote last week to the Formula One team. I was writing a new one every mm. single week. So these kind of things were, you know, there's a lot of effort and dedication and hard work went into it. But you've equally got to have a bit of luck as well. You know, I was very lucky that, my opportunity when it did come happened to come with what was at the time one of the most successful teams in Formula One. You know, I could have got an opportunity with somebody like Minardi, which still would have been a dream come true, but would have been a very different experience where I'd yes. been, I'd have never experienced, you know, that, that amazing feeling of winning Grand Prix or even winning a championship or working with some of these amazing drivers that I was lucky enough to work with. So you never get anything without hard work. But sometimes you need a little bit of luck as well to go with that to, to, to achieve your ultimate dream. Excellent. Now, over to you, Harry, for my favourite question of the entire podcast. Favourite and final, what are you scared of? <laughs> um, <laughs> goodness me. Um, we, ha- we ask all the highbrow questions on this, uh, on this podcast. <laughs> uh, what am I scared of? Um, 
I'm scared of the internet going down right now. <laughs> I, I know. Tell me about it. We're all stuck at home and, and it's fine. And, and you were in this sort of novelty period where actually it's, it's fine. It's all working okay for me. You know, I'm kind of at home. I've got my family here, which is nice because I'm always traveling. So that's a nice experience. Mm. I can do YouTube. I can do my YouTube. I can work from home and, and actually it all works really well. If the internet went down, we'd all be stuck. Yeah. We'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? we would, yeah. That would ruin everything. I dread to think. God, touch wood, it doesn't. Oh. Brilliant. Well, well, I think that brings us to the end of all our questions. It does indeed. Mark, thank you for joining us. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on and hearing your story and some of the stories that you have from your, your years with McLaren um, and obviously your your uh, transition into the media world. Um, we wish you all the best for the future. Hopefully we'll get some racing in this year and, uh, and let's certainly stay in touch. But thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening and giving up your time for us. Huge thank you to Mark as well. Do make sure you check out the Racing Chocks website who are sponsoring this episode of the Motormouth podcast. You can check them out at www.racingchocks.com to get your tasty motorsport chocolate treats in time for Easter and give them a follow on social media as well. We'll be back with another episode very soon. If you have missed any of the previous episodes, you can take a hop back in your chosen podcast player and find them all there. And don't forget, there's also loads more content on MMTV and the Motormouth app available to download on any device now. Like, subscribe and review if you feel so inclined. It really helps people to find the podcast and you can follow us on social media as well. Twitter is at Motormouth underscore Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and on Facebook just search Motormouth. In the meantime, from myself and Tim, stay safe, stay healthy and we'll see you next time. <laughs>